Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently posted our discussion of the Oscar nominations, walking through what surprised us and who we're rooting for. And there's more on the way. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. I've been badgering the three of you all day with book and author trivia related to this week's pairing. So what do you think? Is it time to finally pivot this podcast away from cinema and just turn it into a book podcast? Books take a long time to read, Tasha. <laughs> you, wait, you don't want to read like two books every other week so we can compare them, Scott? We did a book club at AV Club at one point, and it thrilled dozens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love doing it. I really love doing it. But, but I feel like that was definitely a one of those, definitely for us, not for the clicks uh, kind of features. We should have just run that right through Geo Media. Just like, boom, just we're going to hit you with it. Wrapped up in books. What's everybody doing? We're all reading. <laughs> And we're all reading a book so we can have a big <laughs> we're discussion We're sitting at our desk it. reading a book. Nobody has time to do uh, anything else. All right, Keith, you want to tell us about the pairing that led us to all this book club talk? Hal Ashby's 1973 film, The Last Detail, is based on a 1970 novel by a Navy veteran, which both explains the film's close attention to small details of Navy life and explains Tasha's focus on book details. The story follows three Navy men, two jaded military lifers, 14 years into their careers, and one 18-year-old with a recent dishonorable discharge, who the other two are escorting to a military prison. Given five days to make the trip up the East Coast, they take some time off to go on a group vendor, visit a Buddhist worship service, and a brothel, and pick fights with Marines and a barman, among other small adventures. There are fewer sexual escapades and fighting for fun in Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, released late last year, but still in theaters and back in the cultural conversation after a series of Oscar nominations. But Payne has held up the last detail as one of the movies that helped inspire his stringently 70s-styled film. It's scripted by David Hemmingson, and also following three people through a chilly East Coast winter, a road trip, and a series of mutual discoveries and reveals. These movies have some notable superficial connections, as well as some broad stylistic ones. 
but mostly they rhyme with each other tonally, as two different trios of socially awkward misfits each navigate disappointments and disconnection in 1970s New England. We'll get into it after this break. What the hell did he do, kill the old man? <laughs> Robbery. How much did he lift? Forty dollars. Tried to lift the polio contribution box. Yeah? Polio boxes, the old man's old lady's favorite do-gooder project. She took it very seriously. Where are we going, Chief? Fortune, naval prison. Good duty for you guys. They're gonna get him there, all right. But first, they gotta take care of a few details along the way. A little over halfway through Hal Ashby's 1973 movie, The Last Detail, the main characters, two Navy petty officers, and the hapless teenage Navy recruit they're delivering to a prison, wind up at a very small house party in New York. The three Navy men are just trying to get laid, but the other four people at the party have their own agendas. The only other male guest starts haranguing one of the officers, trying to get him to speak up against President Richard Nixon. He's increasingly shrill and confrontational about it, while the Navy man refuses to engage. Shortly after that, one of the female guests asks the same Navy man, more gently, about how he feels about serving in Vietnam during the ongoing conflict. He shrugs the question off uncomfortably, saying he has to do whatever the man tells him to do. Oh, wow, she drawls, clearly disappointed in him and judging him, even though they're barely really communicating at all. Vietnam, racial tensions, and the Nixon years are the backdrop of the era the last detail is set in, but it's only a backdrop. Unlike so many movies made in or set in the Vietnam era and dealing with the military, The Last Detail isn't primarily a political movie or a war movie. The Navy men here aren't meant to symbolize the government, the military-industrial complex, or the mindset that these party guests are rebelling against. The three protagonists are just out to grab a little bit of pleasure in the few days they've been spared between unpleasant duties and stifling obligations. It's clear from that party scene that the moments they find alone together, away from civilians and superior officers alike, may be the only moments where they get to live outside a cloud of expectations, restrictions, prejudice, and judgment, where they get to be just men, not symbols or functions in a larger machine. That realization goes a long way toward explaining the rest of the action in the last detail, and explaining how its complicated characters relate to each other. Based on the 1970 debut novel of Navy veteran Daryl Ponixan, Incidentally, the man later tasked with scripting the little-loved voiceover narration in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, Hal Ashby's 1973 film adaptation follows the same story. As an 18-year-old court-martialed Navy recruit, Larry Meadows, bonds with the two men tasked with escorting him from a naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, up to a military prison in Maine. Meadows, played by a baby-faced Randy Quaid, who earned an Oscar nomination for the role, has been sentenced to eight years in military prison for trying to steal $40 from a charity donation box. His escorts, Petty Officers Billy Badowski, a.k.a. Badass, played by Jack Nicholson, and Richard Mulhall, a.k.a. Mule, played by Otis Young, both feel like Meadows got a raw deal. Billy, who starts out teasing Meadows with the cavalier attitude of a man who doesn't necessarily believe that other people have feelings, starts to sympathize with Meadows, then decides to show him a good time before he gets locked up. For Billy, that involves looping the kid into drinking beer, fighting Marines, shopping for pornography, and visiting a brothel to lose his virginity. There's a fine line in all this between Billy trying to parent this effectively parentless kid, trying to cheer up a fellow Navy man who's staring down a depressing future, or trying to lure another man into validating Billy's vices and backing him up on the adventures he wants to have. 
Mule, who lives up to his name by periodically digging in his heels against Billy's full speed ahead impulses, seems to see through a lot of these motives and takes them with a something between a raised eyebrow, a weary sigh, and downright irritation. Mule clearly likes his booze and his freedom as much as Billy does, but he's much less willing to jeopardize his Navy career for them. As he puts it, the Navy is the best thing that's ever happened to him, and he and the elderly mother who depends on him financially can't afford too much cutting up. Mule's position as a black petty officer, not terribly far removed from the civil rights era, is another undercurrent throughout the film, one scene in that party scene, and the specific questions he fields from the other guests, and later in a confrontation with a racist bartender. Once again, race is an element the story acknowledges as a backdrop, while rarely foregrounding it in the story. That's par for the course for the last detail, which keeps its focus close in on the constantly, quickly evolving relationship between these three men, and the push and pull between Billy's impulsive id, Meadow's greenness and extreme naivete, and Mule's worldly-wise attitude, which yanks him back and forth between participating in the adventure and trying to keep from getting pulled too far in. Ultimately, though, this is also the story of a friendship of convenience that's operating on a deadline. Billy may want to show Meadows the world he's missed out on as a sheltered virgin who's never had a beer, but he also knows he eventually has to deliver him to a grim future. The duty that they're all tied to hangs over the film, just as much as Billy and Mule's possible future in Vietnam hangs over them. As Ponixan puts it in the book, quote, you draw one shit detail and then you draw another, until you draw the last detail. It's unclear by the sudden end of this movie what Billy and Mule's next shit detail is going to look like. It might be their last detail, and it might not. But it's clear that their little window of freedom is closing, almost as quickly as Meadows' freedom is being taken away. They're both in the hands of the same organization and operating under the same rules. In the end, the tumultuous times they're living through aren't nearly as heavy a weight as that inevitability, and the way it's going to keep them moving from one rough job to another until the last detail arrives. I consider myself in jeopardy with you, man. Understand? In jeopardy. This ain't no farewell party, and he ain't retiring. Understand? He's a prisoner, and we're taking him to the jailhouse. And you have a tendency to forget that. You're a menace, man. You ain't no simple shit, badass. You're a motherfucking menace. And from now on, M.A. can go piss up a rope. You ain't no honcho. And I want to hear no more of this horseshit psychology jive. No more turning that boy's head around to prove what a big man you are. Your life are like me. The Navy's the best thing ever happened to me. And I don't want you to f*** me up. You understand? Badusky. I hear you. Well, do you agree? I was just trying to show the kid a good time. You know what I mean? He can't have a good time. It ain't in him. So guys, to my mind, I mean, this movie really kind of revolves around Billy. You know, he he makes the choices for people. He keeps pushing them into things. He he steers everything that's going on. What do you make of him as a character? I mean, we we get all of these tiny little elements of him that push and pull in different directions. But at the end of the day, he's like one integrated guy. Do you have a sense, do you think, for who he is or, you know, what drives him? I was sitting here thinking, who's Billy? And like, oh, you mean badass. <laughs> I'm not going to call him badass. So I, I'm, I'm going to bring the book up a lot, I think, uh, for a lot of reasons. But I will say when I started reading it, like it's clear from like 
about page two that everybody calls him badass. In the movie, it honestly feels to me like that's a nickname he yeah. gave himself and mm-hmm. he's trying to make Fetch happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to participate in Fetch. So, <laughs> and I don't necessarily want to keep trying to pronounce his last name. But I think the fact that he is trying to make it happen tells us a lot about his character, sort of the posturing that goes into it. And I, I, I especially think about it in terms of when he's talking with Mule about his ex-wife and how she wanted him to be a, a television repairman and have this kind of small, mundane life and that not being enough for him, you know? And he definitely like seems to be someone who sees a grander story to his life and also in the party when he's like you know talking so poetically about the sea and trying to impress everyone about it like he's he's definitely like kind of made himself a a bit of a myth in his own mind and i think the the degree to which that kind of clashes with the the sort of mundanity of this voyage that the three of them take is kind of uh, very telling about his character I feel pretty sympathetic toward him, and in part because I feel like sympathy is kind of his in one of his defining characteristics anyway. I mean, mm. I do think that ultimately their treatment of Larry is an, is an act of, of kindness, however futile ultimately. I, I think kind of the thing that defines him for me, though, is, is his reaction to the two confrontations the one in the bar where he's you know all jazzed up and uh, about how he put that bartender in his place and then the second one at the end with the with the marine where he's just telling himself that to try to restore a little bit of dignity from this incident that's made him realize just how little choice he has in his life i mean and 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 you know his chosen career has made him someone who follows orders and he can adopt a rebellious attitude and etc cetera, etc cetera, but in the end he's going to follow those orders. I think it's interesting, too, how I never thought of Jack Nicholson necessarily as a short person, but they certainly emphasize his small stature. I mean, anyone, I guess, Randy, Randy, Qu- I think I like Randy Quaid's like my height, so people <laughs> next to him are going to look a little small anyway, but it is quite considerable, the difference. I definitely wanted to bring that in because I, I think that this movie, if nothing else in the casting, emphasizes him as it's kind of a short, bandy little man. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of time that he spends in this movie just in his underdrawers, like looking fairly scrawny by at least today's standards for, you know, shirtless male movie megastars. He just he seems like the kind of like little bantam rooster guy who would be coded in a movie as like scrappy but also with a chip on his shoulder and a lot to prove uh for what it's worth he's i looked it up nicholson's 510 so he's not tiny but he certainly seems Mm. they do emphasizes his tininess in this Mm -hmm. regarding billy and i kind of think about him as part of you know a series of kind of classic jack nicholson performances and characters you think about you know, five easy pieces and one flew of the cuckoo's nest and the the shining and and uh, you know plenty of the films he was making Chinatown of the films he was making in that era. For one, I, I think the problem with being in a cast with Jack Nicholson is that you just cannot take your eyes off of Jack Nicholson. He's just such an electric performer, and and so of course he's just becomes kind of the center of gravity in this in this movie. Yeah, I think there's just a, there's just a lot of depth to this character who's so restless and angry and i and i think he does have that sympathy for meadows that i think is earned i think i think it's also shared by mule in the sense that it's just you know what this poor kid is kind of being sent to the brig for for 
eight years or six years potentially, but eight is uh, <laughs> it's just so absurd. It's such an injustice, and they know what is waiting for him. They know it's, he's not. They they I think discover pretty quickly that he's not the type of person who can who who will be able to handle that time well with some pretty hard men and and i and i like that the the sense of injustice that that he feels and then that that instinct to just stretch this time that they have out as much as possible and to just sort of drain as much experience you know out of the time as as possible and i you know i i love it and i think there i think there's something in the direction too in ashby's direction of just he just he's so subtle and he just kind of catches people's expressions and you know he'll do these he'll do these really great dissolves you know i i, I would kind of wish that we had done our <laughs> the dissolves per minute I, in this film i was oh my God. wild there's one that's like mid mule yelling yeah, at yeah yeah it's like there's like three dissolves in the middle of like a 30 second Why didn't uh, we monologue put in, our, in our little video or it would have been a great candidate because i think it's so effective and then and then he'll just you know ashby will give you these kind of unexpected close-ups on on like on nicholson's face and it will and that that just kind of give the film this real melancholy feel even though it's it's often quite raucous i just love nicholson in this it's just it's one of those performances where you're just like oh okay this guy kind of ruled the 70s this was just this is somebody who just you can't take your eyes off of him call out a couple of little details about his character which you know we by by mid movie we've kind of got him pinned down as somebody who likes to drink and and talk and fight and have a good time and kind of like surround himself with other people but especially in the early going two of the details we get one is him reading a book on the train which in the uh the book that was adapted here like it's it's clear at the beginning of the story that he's reading Camus like he's he's reading The Stranger and he actually explains it to like a fellow Navy guy who wants to know what it's about here I I could not see the cover of that book like I couldn't get it pinpointed but the fact that he's brought a book with him on this journey that he he's sitting down and reading on the train still says something about him as a character it, you know, it's we don't know if it's Camus, but it's clearly not like a comic book, which would have been sort of the the era's shorthand for this is not a deep thinker. And then there's the way on the train. He just he keeps needling Mule by making up different names for him until Mule lays the law down. And when Mule stands up to him, like he immediately backs down and he he doesn't play with it again uh, for the rest of the movie. Like he he isn't a complete jerk about it. But we see that his first impulse, even after already making a connection with this fellow made Navy man and like bringing him in on the plan to kind of gold brick around up and down the East Coast and spend a bunch of Navy money on per diems, he still just can't help kind of bullying him almost, just like poking him to see what he's going to do. And I'm, I'm curious how you integrate those two things into this character. I mean, I think it's notable that he is a, a signalman, you know, and like one, one of my favorite little scene details uh, in this film is, uh, you know, him, him teaching Meadows semaphore, you know, and of course that has a, it comes back in a really fun way at the end with the bye-bye uh, <laughs> when, when he flees. It's so good. But like, you know, signalmen, like their job is communication, you know, and like he is the character who is sort of like kind of in constant conversation with the world around him, whether the world around him is, is interested in it or not. 
in both of those examples, you uh, note, Tasha, there is sort of like a innate, I guess, curiosity or engagement with other people or other ideas, you know? So I think like that's perhaps a generous reading of his character, but I do think it is interesting that he has this particular role in the Navy that is different from the other two's role and that it gets, you know, such a a spotlight outside of him actually performing that role in the Navy. Tasha, you were talking about the Camus thing too and I I think it kind of speaks to a restlessness and a, to Billy's character and in his unwillingness to kind of be put into a box you know you think about his talk about how he was supposed to kind of go into TV repair and that was what he was going to do and uh, you know I just I think there's kind of a uh, you know I think anytime he feels confined like that I think I think he, he wants to kind of push back a little bit and i mean and that that in part kind of explains a lot of his behavior here in both big and small ways i love how we get little details that kind of make the character too like the fact that he knows he has a bar in every city it's so like you know he's got his dc bar he's got his new york place where he where he has the uh where you, you can get the the good italian uh sandwiches eat italian beef <laughs> sandwiches you know it's just like you know without really you know going into to great detail you kind of get the sense of someone. He's just someone who's been around, and he just kind of bummed around too. Like this is this is how he spends his downtime. Uh, this is an exceptional trip, I guess, but this is not the actual uh, thing. What they're doing on the trip is not all, all that exceptional. So what they're doing on the trip is escorting somebody to prison. But I think that, you know, a, a lot of what defines this story is kind of the the deadline that they're facing, which, which, by the way, I sat down and mapped how far is it from Norfolk, Virginia, to the, the place that they're going in Maine. You can make that drive in about 10 and a half hours, mm-hmm. but the Navy gives them five days to get there. And <laughs> I, I, it blows my mind. Your tax it's dollars like, at work, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, it just it reminds me of the example I always come back to is the parallax view where is that Warren Beatty? Yep. He realizes he wants to follow somebody who's getting on a plane. So he just goes and gets on the plane with him and then like pays the stewardess for a ticket. You know, as as if he was riding on a, a train. It's just a window into a completely different era. And the window into this era where it makes sense for the Navy to give people like a per diem and expect them to ride like eight different trains and 12 different buses or whatever, you know, to go 10 hours up the coast is just a little mind boggling to me. There's there's all sorts of stuff in this movie that's just, you know, take a look at uh, at this New York neighborhood in 1973. Take a look, take a look at what D.C. looked like in 1973. I love some of the period nonsense. But that said, there's a deadline hanging over this this entire thing. And Meadows is kind of in limbo, waiting to see like how it's going to come out. And it just sort of being in in a pause state that's kind of similar to what's going on in like the 25th hour in terms of Mm. we're going to prison. What are the lead up? What's the lead up time going to look like? I just think it's really significant that both Billy and Mule here are also in limbo. You know, they're they're camped out in Norfolk waiting for orders, waiting for new ship assignments. And they don't know where they're going next or what they're doing next. They don't know if they're getting shipped off to Vietnam or, you know, they're just going to be sitting around Norfolk for six more months. So I'm curious whether you feel that sense with them of them sort of equally being between things and what that means to this movie. 
I was curious about what, you know, getting their orders, you know, what that necessarily meant for these characters. I guess it wasn't really necessarily going to Vietnam, but uh, I guess it could, but they just seem kind of eager to have something to do in some ways, you know, like what is the next step in the, you know, these are, these are lifers as we'd say, uh, as they call themselves. And I guess it's kind of awkward being in between chapters of that life. Uh, from the context I got from the book, forgive me, I'm going to bring it up again. <laughs> it seemed pretty clear that this was something that happened. Like, I, I don't know that much about how the Navy works, but it was very clear in the opening that this is a situation where they would be assigned to a ship that needed somebody in their position, like that kind of personnel. But that ship might not have come in yet. Like, literally, their ship might might not have come in. So there are a bunch of people hanging around in Norfolk, like your next assignment is, is to be on this ship. That ship will not come back to port for another like two weeks. So that's, that's more or less the situation they're in. I'm not sure if it's clear from the movie. Is it clear from the book about whether this is the kind of thing they've done before this kind of an escort? I mean, they, they, they seem to kind of know what the, what the ground rules are for this anyway. I mean, how often have they done this? I mean, they, they're both wearing shore patrol uh, armbands. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like they've done this a bunch before, but they, they certainly do seem to know, like, kind of what the score oh, is. Yeah. I mean, Billy is the motherfucking shore patrol. <laughs> <laughs> Even though this is, you know, as, as Jenny, you've pointed out, like, Billy's a signalman. Mule is a gunnery's mate. So, you know, this is seems outside their realm of duty. But, I, I, you know, I think you're right. They certainly treat it like they've done, uh, I guess, milk runs before, effectively. Well, they know when to have, when the cuffs are supposed to be on, when they can be off, at, you know, uh, where they're supposed to be kind of in, in relation to the person that they're escorting. You know, how to get away with making a, <laughs> a short journey, a long one. Uh, they, they're very, very skilled at that. So uh, exactly how many Italian sausages you can buy with your per diem. (laughs) I mean, they're almost like blasé about it in a way that like could possibly translate to they've done this a bunch or could translate to they don't really consider it an assignment worthy of them, I guess, because, you know, they 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 know how it's supposed to work, but then they immediately go about massaging the situation to, (laughs) to their own desires, Billy in particular. Yeah, I mean, what happens to them? I mean, it becomes such a great opportunity for them to be free for a little bit, you know, to kind of, you know, because what's mm-hmm. going to happen if they actually take the straight path and get rid of the brig as quickly as possible is that they just kind of what go back to Norfolk and wait again. And it, it doesn't, at least this kind of allows them to go on this little discursive adventure and do some drinking and carousing and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, they initially, uh, Billy in particular, think of it as like a potential vacation just for them. Like Meadows doesn't factor in until they're kind of on the way. But the initial plan is to get him there as quickly as possible so that they can have extra per diem and make their way back. And maybe that's why Billy brought the book (laughs) with him, you know, like he was like kind of they're treating this as a a, maybe a little vacation. That's true. It seems like uh, Larry's not going to be much of a hassle. And it's actually not really a hassle. I think they they get sidetracked because they're they're interested, they become interested in him, not because 
because of anything he does, apart from his uh, some, some of the funnier <laughs> jokes earlier on, is just his uncontrollable kleptomania, just like stealing uh, yeah. carrots. Carrot. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting thing to focus on in the early going of, of the film, especially in the context of Mulholland Badusky, like learning what he did slash didn't do and how the punishment doesn't fit the crime, but we're at the same time, we're seeing that, well, he's got a little bit of a klepto streak, you know, he's stealing for apparently no other reason than then it's there. And, you know, we can infer that that is the same impulse that led him to make this terrible decision that led him to this place he's in now. It's an interesting way to like kind of illustrate his guilt while also illustrating the injustice of the punishment. You get the feeling that, that as they note earlier on, there's something not quite right about him. Mm-hmm. you know that like he's you know ma- you know maladjusted for want of a, of a better word you know he'll he'll steal or he's just not mature or he's just not so not someone who you know it's a, an unjust sentence under any circumstances but someone who is perhaps not in control of his impulses like, it's even more unfair for him yeah and that moment where mule catches him with the carrots and his his response is to squeal and run i think maybe tells you almost as much about his his background and his history as mm-hmm. anything else in the movie you know as as that glimpse of the squalor and like dishevelment of his his family home what i saw in that moment when he when he squeals and and jumps up and tries to run away is basically a a kid who's been abused mm-hmm. a, a kid who possibly grew up as a kleptomaniac and was used to being beaten for it you know possibly by family possibly by whoever caught him shoplifting or whatever but that response it's not a considered response it's a trauma response it's a, a fear response with just no intellect behind it and it's if anything, it seems like that's what kind of shifts uh, the other two men's mm-hmm. sympathy towards him. They're embarrassed for him. They're humiliated by him and, and his behavior. They want him to behave differently because it'll reflect better on them. But they also, I think, come to see him as a kid and a pretty scared kid at that. And him breaking down weeping on them is only half of it, really. It's good a contrast to that I mean, because you know, because there are two f- sort of flights in the movie. It's a good contrast with what happens later, which is uh, which is you know when he does make that escape attempt at, towards the end of the, of the movie. Like that's that's actually considered. That's a, this this little opportunity, this little desperate opportunity before he gets taken in that he seizes upon. That's a much different thing than the, the fleeing that he does on the on the train where he can go nowhere. <laughs> really, he's just fleeing out of fear and shame. But there's all there's still a childish element to that that second flight, like just the he's he's very like tentative in his creeping away at first, and then as uh, previously mentioned, the the bye bye uh, signal, like yeah, there's an evolution there, but it's not necessarily that he's you know grown up or he's like a, a a man now in a way that he wasn't before. You know, he just has a little more experience than he did four days ago. Yeah. You know, maybe a, a little shift in his expectations. There's the whole bit of business with, you know, send the cheeseburger back. They didn't melt the cheese. And Ooh. Billy urging him to stand up for himself, which, you know, he eventually does with the eggs in a very, very small way. 
But, you know, between that and the whole business about like losing his virginity and the kind of mythological associations of, you know, now literally now you're a man, it seems like he doesn't turn into a hardened military veteran overnight. But mm-hmm. in that running away sequence, like I saw him trying to stand up for himself and trying to seize something that that he wanted for himself. I mean, contrast that to at the party where he says, uh, you know, he can't run away because it'll be the other two guys' asses oh, and they're, they're his friends. best friends. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Killer. God, man, it's just crazy. It's crazy to think about this movie because it's, it's so detailed. Uh, it's called The Last Detail, but it's so detailed. There's so many, like, <laughs> there's so many interesting, you know, scenes and, and moments that are so small in the film. I mean, just all of that stuff of the party yeah. and the different conversations and interactions that take place are so cool. And then, uh, you know, you get the that Buddhist incredible meeting, the chant, the chanting, right. The chant with the, Gilda Radner. With, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the chanting. And then you've got all the stuff. Uh, and then you have the, the brothel stuff with Carol Kane, which is, that's incredible. Uh, that, that's a whole amazing, uh, series of scenes as, as well. It's just like, man, this film has got a lot of character to it. It's some good writing. I mean, we should mention, I don't think, is the name uh, Robert Town come up? Because <laughs> he scripted this thing. Probably should. He's, he's, he's a le- he, is, <laughs> he is a bit of something of a legend. Well, we haven't really dug into Ashby's influence or his career yet either. And that's that's something I want to I definitely want to get to both with him in town. But before we do, like we we haven't really talked about Mule at all as a character. And I I definitely don't want to, you know, delve deep into the histories and uh, psychology of the two white people in this movie and, and leave out Mule. I think that this film is just very aware of his race and very aware of how every situation he gets in, he's thinking of in terms of his race and his place in society without making it a huge foregrounded thing. Like he he doesn't necessarily address it, but I just I see so much consciousness of this is how this situation, whatever this situation is, is different for me than it is for them and and his awareness of that. And I guess I'm curious what you think defines him as a character or what you find interesting or, or telling about him as a character. I think there's a sense, of, as opposed to uh, to Billy, that he understands there are limits as to what he can, he can get away with, that Billy yes. uh, can get away with more than he can. And I don't think race even comes up uh, until they go to the bar. I think it's always kind of in, in the background there. But I, I do think he's someone who realizes the consequences for acting out or re- rebelling are going to be much harsher for him than they are for, for his, his friend. That's his biggest speech in the film, I think. I mean, he is kind of like, of the three, the 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 one that gets maybe the less, the least amount of attention uh, in the screenplay. But when he does speak, like that whole sort of monologue that he gives toward Billy, underlines all of that of just like you know this job, this is a good job, this is a good job for him. It's an important to him, and he doesn't have anything like Billy's latitude to, to act up. So uh, that, I I thought that that stuff is all uh, yeah, pretty fascinating. Yeah, he's he's the the pragmatist, the realist to, you know, Billy's romantic and Meadows's child, you know, and that role in the triad, like it doesn't necessarily allow for 
big moments such as they are. This is not necessarily a film of big moments, but you know, it doesn't necessarily allow for like revelations or growth the way that the other two characters are positioned. So he is kind of like this more, I guess, baseline figure, but the film gives us just enough, just enough to see where that attitude is coming from based on his life experience as a black man. Well, let's let's dig into the the Ashbian town of it all. I, is is there anything in particular that you see as a connection with either of their other movies here? I mean, with Ashby, one thing we can start with is kind of what we already touched on is is the is the dissolves um, and just the editing in general. He was an editor before he was a director, and like, you know, considered one one of the best best around. And I think just that sort of sense of you know where to cut, when to cut. Like one of my favorite cuts in the films uh, is when it's a cut from Billy saying he's going to hustle this guy to the aftermath, in which he has successfully hustled the guy. We don't need we don't actually need to see the scene. It's it's actually the the payoff itself on its own is is pretty great. Uh, I mean, this was Ashby was just in the zone at this point. I mean, there there is that run between the landlord and being there is, is, is as good of a run as any director's ever had. But but I don't know beyond sort of a, a mood what unites those movies necessarily. But you know, you still know it's an Ashby movie, I guess. It almost becomes like a Jonathan Demme thing where it's just, it's like, yeah. you just, you, it's just a feel. You know, he creates this kind of, he kind of has a hidden touch that is that that's kind of hard to define but felt <laughs> in a way uh that's kind of you know I, I felt like uh, michael ritchie another director of that who was really strong in that period mm-hmm. who did movies like smile and bad news bears and that sort of thing uh, you know he, he had that touch as well of just you know where, where it was kind of invisible and yet the, the films had a certain certain something to them uh, um you know attention to detail a real kind of lived in quality which is something i think we'll get into when we bring in holdovers because i think that's kind of an alexander payne specialty of just of uh of really paying attention to interiors and exteriors and and, and drawing out as much detail from that as possible beyond the characters the things that will actually tell you things about the characters based on their the environments they're in and, and you know and vice versa i think that, that's kind of an ashby thing as well as far as town is concerned this is just on a run for town i mean town town wrote this film then he wrote chinatown then he wrote shampoo i mean he was just he was kind of rolling at this at this uh at this moment and uh you know uh, you know i mean tasha can maybe speak more to the decisions that got made here in terms of what was included and what, what was not included and you know certainly that figures into the the ending again which i have not read the book but it's considerably altered for the movie and that you know i'm sure those are, those are choices that that town had a you know a great deal of say on yeah i also wonder exactly what the mechanic was of getting jack nicholson involved with this because a town worked with him a bunch they came up together under roger corman they were in a, an initial class together they were roommates for a while their careers have just been linked you know for for a long time including here and i'm sort of wondering whether one of them you know brought the other in or had anything to do with with that connection i don't know enough about the kind of the history of how this movie came together I, i'm afraid I, I don't know much beyond what the wikipedia uh entry told me but there was a whole thing about it, it possibly being recast when there was trouble getting it made with uh well, what was it i'll look it up here david cassidy 
it's in the uh, uh, in the Randy Quaid role uh, was one of the choices. It, I don't think that would have been as good. I just just going to say it right here. I don't think that would have been as good of a film. Randy Quaid kind of sneakily in some big films of that era. He was really good. I mean, we can get. I don't want to get into the whole downfall of Randy Quaid, but I mean, he was good all the way up through like. Uh, until he kind of kind of lost it there with you know um, with Brokeback Mountain he's very good too. But I, I'll think about how we're um, sidetracking, but but Kingpin the Verily Brothers movie then is kind of in some ways a little bit like this a little, little little nod to the last detail where he plays an, an Amish bowling prodigy who's taken on the town and, and educated in the ways of life. <laughs> I didn't think about that one. I just want to point out that David Cassidy is five foot ten. So here's here's the alternate cast. I'm looking at it now: uh, Burt Reynolds, Jim Brown, and David Cassidy. And you know, Burt Reynolds, Jim Brown, that, that, that works. could have won. You know, yeah, at that time especially, but I yeah. don't know. Uh, I'm glad we got the cast we got, though. Yeah, it just, I, you know, the way Randy Quaid kind of like towers above Billy in particular is just such a, a key part of this movie. You know, he's so clearly a, a boy, but he's kind of an, an overgrown gangly boy. And there's just this sense of, you know, him never quite knowing where to to put his feet or put his body. He, he slumps through so much of this film. He's kind of like hunched over. And if he was uh, Cassidy, David Cassidy is five foot eight. If he was looking up at Billy the whole time because he was a tiny little guy, like that's just, you know, it's it's not necessarily that it would be a wrong interpretation, but it would be a very different one visually. I'm curious whether any of you have seen uh, Hal Ashby's Coming Home, which, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the story it's telling about, you know, a man who's in Vietnam and a man who's back from Vietnam and the woman who who loves them both kind of seemed like the movie maybe most likely to rhyme with this or have some like thematic connections with it. It doesn't. It doesn't. In, in, a, in a way, it's a great movie, but but it's and it definitely has that sort of you know, deliberate pace and emphasis on characters and small moments. But, you know, it's definitely more explicitly about Vietnam than this is. It's interesting, too, because it's, it's you see it now and it has all like the, these, you know, I think Credence and Rolling Stones music cues that have become so cliched for depicting that subject matter. But it's the first time they're being used. And it's one of those things where you can kind of feel it still being fresh even though you've heard it in other movies it's just you kind of sense it's the first time and and, and it, it feels right in a way scott made reference to the the end of the book being very different and that's one something that i wanted to, to tag in on when i was re-watching this movie for the podcast you know i'd, I'd seen it before but it had been quite some time when I got to the end, I just I, I kind of felt like the story was incomplete. You know, there's there's the lack of any kind of conversation or, or resolution between the the two older men and Meadows. He just he kind of gets whisked away and they, you know, sort of look after him as he's hauled up the stairs by these, you know, pretty, pretty brutal men. There's a sort of sense of, well, we would have liked to say goodbye, but that's just not how this organization works. And then instead, we get that kind of like awkward situation with the the officer in charge. And then that's it. You know, they they walk off together with with kind of a grumble. And that's the end of the story. And it just it felt really abrupt and incomplete to me. So mm. when I disagree. when I got my hands on the book, you disagree. We'll get into that. We'll get into that in one second. The book is very different. And uh, I will get into that in a minute. But no, just just tell me why the ending of the movie as is works for you so well. I mean, I just I think it's so poignant and heartbreaking that they don't get a goodbye and they don't get a final word with him. Like they're just being 
forced abruptly back into the reality of this situation. They've been in this kind of like, you know, liminal space for the past however many days with this kid and having a unique and kind of life changing experience in in a way, at least for, for him. And then for it to just kind of be unceremoniously ended like that, it's kind of a reminder of like, that's not what this was about. That's never what this was supposed to be about. This was all this was all gravy for you guys, <laughs> basically. It also, I feel, kind of sets the table for them being so disgruntled and feeling kind of out of sorts as they're as they're leaving because they don't get this closure and like that's what life is like you don't get the the romantic poetic goodbye that like billy might expect you know we talked about him being a sort of romantic figure in in a lot of ways and you know this he is kind of like the driving force of this whole adventure and then for it to just be very summarily just like cut short i don't know i I find it very poignant and affecting in the context of everything that leads up to it and the sort of setting up the final beat of the two of them leaving really nicely as well yeah it's the same i mean i i love the ending because because i i feel like it ultimately is is saying you can these guys can rebel and they can act out against this injustice they can recognize it and get angry over it but their ability to affect any change is uh minimal and i think i think we all kind of feel that way at times too but i think it's 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 the it's the core truth of these guys lives you know that they probably recognize as well uh even before this trip but but to be reminded of it in uh, in this situation is is not easy yeah, I, 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 yeah, I can't, I can't put it any better than Genevieve and Keith have. But, but I think it's, it is something. It is a situation where, as a moviegoer, you are expecting a beat that isn't there, and you feel it. That scene mm-hmm. that you that you crave, that you expect, where they get to say goodbye, and you know, because it, because things ended on such a tough note, isn't uh, isn't there? It's almost like a, a death in a way. It's like it's like if somebody. You don't often get the scene where you, where, you, where someone passes away and, and you get get to hold their hand and talk to them and it's a lovely moment. <laughs> so, sometimes it's right at, you, you had an argument with them, you know, <laughs> or you know, or things you know, or things were kind of added on a crappier note than you wanted to, and that's kind of like and it's just you know, death at like the military and the military they they handle things pretty pretty coldly. But Tasha, you 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 have so- thoughts. <laughs> Well, I mean, I pretty much said them as far as that ending is concerned. It just, you know, it's not that I I demand all my movies wrap up neatly in a bow. It's not that I believe real life wraps up neatly in a bow. It's that to me, the the kind of like thematic underpinning of the movie felt incomplete. It sort of felt like we edged up to, to the edge of learning something and then ran out of money and stopped stopped filming the movie, like like that kind of abruptness. So I was pretty fascinated to read the the end of the book, you know, having it, it, this just came up when I was kind of doing, you know, research for this in terms of, you know, the source material and Ashby's adaptations and uh, a bunch of other stuff. And I, I ended up finding a copy of the book and reading it. And essentially what happens is a lot of the scenes play out much as they do in the movie, but there is a goodbye scene where Billy gets to kind of, you know, share his his wisdom and tell Meadows to kind of man up and, you know, be strong. And then he and Mule leave together, but they're both just so disaffected by the way everything went down that they end up going AWOL and 
like going on their own separate bender and just refusing to go back. And they they argue amongst themselves and they kind of have a falling out. And eventually the shore patrol comes around for both of them. There's a conflict and uh, Billy is killed. So the, the book ends with an epilogue with Mule in military prison himself, kind of like musing over military life and, and the Navy and what he's learned. And I guess in a way, it's more pat thematically, but to me, it just feels a lot more complete in terms of especially acknowledging that these two men, you know, have their own lives that did not begin at the beginning of the movie when they're introduced to this other guy and that don't really end with each other either. It, it just to me, the end of the book kind of emphasizes that this was a moment where three people came together for a while and built this little relationship, but all three of them are going on and in different directions afterwards. I don't know that I like the patness of uh, Billy dying, but it just it felt like a much more stronger and, and felt and thought through ending for me. And it sounds like nobody's going to agree with me on that one. Well, I had to read the book to see how it reads in context, but but I, I like the ending of this film as as it is for for the film. Yeah, I can't say that like I think that's a quote unquote bad ending for the stories it's told in the book, but I, I just I can't imagine that ending in this movie. I could imagine that ending in an, another version of, of this movie, but there's just such a sort of like ambling, loping quality to this movie that having such like a, a strong button, I guess, at, at, at the end feels like not of a piece with just sort of the the overall tone and, and pace of this movie. So I guess the, the abruptness of the ending feels like it has more emphasis within the movie that we have, whereas if the story had continued in the way that it does in the book, I don't know. I, I think it would have felt more artificial. What's the last line of the film? Does anyone remember? Because I, I I should have written it down because mm. I thought it was such a strong finish, and I just I think I, it was. It's may, maybe our orders will come through. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Well, I think we've gotten our orders as far as <laughs> wrapping up this discussion uh, before we end up with uh, a podcast as long as the movie. But we've got a lot more to talk about in terms of the, uh, the relationship between these three men and especially about, I think, race and how it plays in. But all of that is going to come up pretty naturally when we talk about this movie next week in conversation with uh, with the holdovers. So uh, I think we're going to wrap this up for the moment and go to feedback. it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the next picture show's mothership podcast hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh have just released their 2024 movie preview in the form of 10 deathmatch duels between films. <laughs> okay, you guys, why aren't we doing more deathmatches on this podcast? <laughs> why are we pairing films in conversation instead of in combat? Oh, see, I, I thought you meant if we're, if, if we're a literal deathmatch, there'd just be two hosts instead of four. <laughs> Uh, given that we're all recording this in different locales, that's going to be a very difficult death match. We'd have to like send each other assassin telegrams or something. I guess coming up with uh, clever ways to to kill each other at a distance might be part of the death match. Hmm. We're going back to our last pairing. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. What's what's the prize for being the last podcaster standing? I think unfortunately, <laughs> it's being forced to continue a podcast by yourself. 
So as far as feedback goes, we recently got a letter from somebody who had just listened to our pairing of Enchanted and Barbie for the first time. Scott, you've got a direct call out in this letter. You want to read it for us? No, I don't actually, but I will. I hate being called out. Uh, anyway, this is from Julian. Uh, Julian writes, I was late listening to it, but I very much enjoyed your discussion of Barbie. However, there is one comment I would like to make, uh, though no doubt others have already done so. At one point, Scott said that this is a film that, quote, teaches young people how to think, end quote. This strikes me as not just wrong, but perfectly wrong in that it is 180 degrees from the truth. Barbie is a didactic polemic, and as such, it is concerned with telling people, young or otherwise, what to think. There is nothing to suggest it's interested in inviting discussion or in coaching its viewers on how to subject it to a skeptical critique, and if anything, the film's overall attitude is that it would be rather hostile to any such thing. The one aspect of the movie that is genuinely subversive and that it strikes a note that is very contrary to the present culture is Barbie's brief and incongruous acknowledgement of the inevitability of death, something which, in our weirdness, uh, we seem to be in denial about. Though, of course, in the film, it is only a passing reference used to kick off the story. Okay, so... I, I, should I respond to this since, since I'm the one, one minute oh, yeah. being called out? Yeah. Um, I, I get where Julian is coming from. However, I think what I meant by that was that it is bringing, making us aware of structural aspects of the culture that we need to be aware of, that we need to think more about. The, you know, Barbie is a a summer entertainment that he's based on a Mattel toy. I mean, but this is a movie that that asks us to give consideration to what does this doll reflect in the culture? How what is its meaning? What does it have to say about women? What is it? What is a what, how is our our society different from the society that might be idealized by Barbie and and her world? I mean, all of the, these are are questions that are explored in the film and the film certainly has a point of view and maybe you could call it you know a didactic polemic i would i think it's a little uh more fun than than that but it, it has a point of view but i also feel like it engages with issues in a, these issues in a substantive way while being a, a fine pop entertainment and and even if it has some answers to the questions that it asks those are questions that potentially audience members had not considered before so that's kind of where i was at on that I, I want to leap to Scott's defense here because uh, with all respect to Julian, I appreciate when our listeners write in and share their opinions, and this is a valid reading on the film. But I think that is an ungenerous reading of Scott saying that it teaches young people how to think, because I think all Scott was saying is that it teaches young people how to question the world around them. Like, that is what Barbie does, Like you know, and she doesn't want to do it at first, like the whole first part of the movie is her like not wanting to ask questions or find out what is happening to her and kind of being forced in that direction. And so I think like the idea of teaching young people how to think is just like telling young people that it is not only okay, but good and desirable to ask questions and then to interrogate the world around you. And that is what Barbie does. So as far as the, you know, didacticism of the film, like it raises those questions and it answers them because it's a narrative, you know, and there's there's an arc to it and there's a, a payoff to the the questions that it raises. So I don't I don't consider that a fault. I'm on your side, Scott. Oh, thanks. 
Tasha can't be on my side, though. Impossible. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I certainly I think you phrased it all very well in terms of, you know, this this isn't necessarily teaching people the philosophy of uh, of cultural critique. It's it's teaching them to just be more aware of what they're being spoon fed and, and to examine it and to to wonder. But the, the part of this letter that I wanted to take up more, since I, I think you mounted a sterling defense of yourself already, is the idea that it is, uh, in fact, pretty subversive in addressing death. But I don't think it's just a, a passing reference to kick off the story. The movie effectively ends with her choosing mortality, mm-hmm. with her deciding that death is something to be, if not embraced necessarily, at least accepted in the hopes of being you know part of of the world like being part of a community of people trying to make a difference and and make changes in the world she effectively gives up immortality you know this is very a very little mermaid kind of story in a way in order to try to be real in order to to try to do something meaningful and I don't know that that's necessarily a, a trade-off that any of us can relate to, per se. <laughs> but I don't think the idea of death is just a, a gag that's dismissed as soon as she, you know, gets off her butt and decides to go check out the real world. Like, her her considering death isn't just, like, a one-shot gag that's forgotten. It's kind of thematic to the movie. And I, I definitely think it do, does come back to it conceptually at the end. I wasn't on that episode. I have nothing. To, I, 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 have, I have. I have no right to contribute to this. Have this you even seen Barbie, Keith? <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> this is where Keith sings a uh, a sad and mournful song with his <laughs> immense crowd of backup dancers about I, 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 how just should Keith. we take the task. <laughs> Well, while while Keith is assembling his backup dancers, we have another letter. This is kind of a less a question than a comment uh, kind of thing, but we really like some of the observations here. Uh, Genevieve, would you mind reading this letter? Sure. Jamshid writes, Hello, after listening to your great end of year episode, I wanted to write to you about my favorite movie of the year, May, December. I was happy to see it on more than one of your lists, and I don't want to give an overall analysis or interpretation of the film. Other people have done that better than I can but I do want to focus on one aspect of the film that maybe hasn't gotten enough attention. Haynes' use of mirrors and reflections. Several people have noted the bathroom mirror scene, but I want to draw attention where Gracie's daughter, Mary, is trying out graduation dresses. It's a single shot, exquisitely framed with Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman both sitting facing the camera, but Gracie's reflection falls on the other side of Elizabeth, so that visually Gracie is enclosing Elizabeth from both sides. And there's just so much going on in the scene, from the way the characters visually overlap each other in the frame, the spatial relations changing as Mary comes in and out of the room, to the way Gracie is casually cruel to her daughter while at the same time carrying on a passive-aggressive power play with Elizabeth. It's as if the scene, especially in its visual frame but also in its dialogue, builds in levels of reality and representation and shows you the complicated relations between the two. In this way, the scene seems to me a microcosm of the layers and themes of the film. Its overall slipperiness condensed into one shot. It's my vote for the scene of the year. I love it. May, December, my second favorite film of last year. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm in favor of this, uh, this sort of analysis. Uh, uh, Jamshid, also a, uh, a reveal uh, super commoner. So uh, it's good, good, to, good to see the name here as well. Yeah, I, I confess I don't have a lot to add to this. It's something I would have to go back and rewatch. I think I was really caught up in the character dynamics on that movie to a degree where I 
think filmmaking subtleties like this would have just washed over me. But I, I'm really glad to see this observation. I think it's a pretty cool one. And I'd like to go back and revisit it. Yeah, it's all kind of in the margins, but but the relationships between the parents and the children in, in that film is fascinating, and I think it would definitely benefit from from uh, repeat viewings. Oh, so it's so layered. Yeah. It's so in that Todd Haynes way. This movie, it's just, it's got so much going on, you know. And if we had paired it, if we had done it and hadn't already done Persona, we could have paired it, and that pro- probably would have focused on a scene like this. Yeah, this whole commentary reminded me a lot of our breakdown of Double Life of Veronique and its use of mirrors, like back in the Dissolve days, uh, which is was another really fun thing to look into just in terms of mirrors and reflections, mm-hmm. a big useful symbol in uh, cinema in general, mm-hmm. and it's something I should probably be just a lot more aware of whenever it comes up. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll bring in Alexander Payne's The Holdovers and consider how the last detail helped inform and inspire it. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, do not stick a Wawa brush up your giggy and break it off. I know that sounds fun, but it turns out you will not enjoy it. 